Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top-of-mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. Hello and welcome. I'm Amy Rojek, Director of BDO Center for Governance, and I'm very happy to have the chance to sit down with Andrew Shapiro to discuss actionable approaches by the board to ensure robust succession planning is occurring and being considered through various stakeholder lenses, and in particular through the lens of an activist investor. But first, let me share a little bit about Andrew. He is the CEO of Lawndale Capital Management and has employed governance, finance, investment, legal, investor relations, and turnaround restructuring skills in managing Lawndale's activist relational hedge funds over the past three decades. He has also served as board member, officer, advisor, and consultant to many boards, debt and equity bankruptcy committees, as well as not-for-profit boards. He particularly enjoys being an advisor to early-stage startups, which currently include Miravelle, an agricultural technology company that developed an attractive hydroponic indoor water garden, as well as Video XRM, a video audio search engine, among other companies. He helps companies transform capital allocation, governance, compensation, and stakeholder engagement to reposition business towards sustainable cash flow growth and optimal valuation. He's an active leader in structuring acquisition, divestiture, turnaround and reorganization transactions, and procuring negotiated solutions and improved corporate governance processes. Andrew is a longtime member and board leadership fellow of the National Association of Corporate Directors, or NACD, and was selected to its NACD Directorship 100. He holds a private company governance certification from the Private Directors Association, and he has represented Lawndale in Council of Institutional Investors for over 20 years and presently serves on CII's Corporate Governance Advisory Committee. Andrew is a frequent instructor, speaker on corporate governance, fiduciary duty, and activist investing topics for several corporate governance and director education programs, and has been featured in Forbes, Barron's, Institutional Investors, and a Business Week article that labeled him, and this is my favorite part of his bio, the Gary Cooper of governance. So in addition to his corporate board service, uh, Andrew serves, let me start that over, in addition to his corporate board service, Andrew serves as board advisor, past chair and president, and on the investment committee of the Mill Valley Library Foundation, and is a board member of the Northern California Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. So Andrew, with that robust bio, welcome to the program. Thanks, Amy. Glad to join you. All right. So Andrew, in in the current environment where highly sought after talent can be really hard to come by and where the performance of those occupying key leadership positions are under continuous scrutiny, can you share a bit about your general philosophy about succession planning? Ideally, the sentiments that are broadly applicable across identifying talent to occupy both the roles of the CEO and board directors within public, private, and nonprofit company structures. Uh, sure. I guess first uh, to focus on the, we'll call it the C-suite. You know, succession planning in the C-suite is an ongoing risk management task of the board. I mean, think of the huge disruption 
that would occur to your organization if your current leader suddenly was gone. The circumstances could carry their own varied distractions and costs to the organization, too. Was the departure a simple surprise resignation? Was it the result of a terrible accident? Or perhaps the individual was hauled away in handcuffs? I'm sure some of your listeners are getting a little uncomfortable just thinking about these scenarios. So some of the basic tenets of succession planning can provide an outline for preparation and vigilance. These should have importance for not just the CEO, but also others at the C-level and certainly board members. And I break it down into kind of, I guess, three interrelated uh, areas. First off, it's regular and continuing board focus and consensus on company goals. I mean, this needs to be a regular and continuous exercise. Another key here is for both short and long-term goals becoming known, hashed out, and accepted by the group before the succession event occurs. You can't have this kind of goal setting occur for the very first time in the middle of a sudden vacancy. The goal setting drives the identification of key skill sets, experiences, diversity of thought, and culture fit needed in the company going forward for the successor to be successful. I emphasize going forward because sometimes a board desires changes to accompany the vacancy. This leads me to the next basic tenet of succession planning, to have regular and continuing board focus and consensus on the needed skills. The leadership skills right for the company's last five years may not be those needed over the next five. For example, with interest rate cycles vastly different now, is a company that was acquisitive and using debt to achieve such growth now in need of greater integration and cost control skills? Evaluation and discussion on keeping the desired job description up to date should be a regular and continuing agenda item for the board, perhaps during executive session. A shift in other leaders in the room might also cause shifts in the needed skills to balance and determine what your needed skills are in the vacant CEO spot or the vacant C-suite spot, CFO, CIO, et cetera. Third, have a pipeline or depth of talent of talented candidates. Having numerous C-level succession candidates internally enables the board to have more cost-effective choices than a single candidate with excessive demands at a time of need for the company and the board. If the company is fortunate and large enough to have depth, a divisional or functional rotation plan along with periodic engagement of successor candidates with the board occurring in advance of a vacancy would greatly enhance the process when the time eventually comes. While an effective outside candidate process is going to carry search and implementation costs, as well as additional risks, it could provide a valuable market check to internal candidates and bring a change agent in if desirable. Have at least one board member on the board with industry skills, experience, and availability to serve in an interim emergency role. Note, do not have that board member serve as an independent chair or an independent lead director. Leave that board leadership role to a governance specialist rather than an industry specialist. A good spot for this potential emergency uh, leader uh, for this director is the comp committee, as he or she will have the relevant value-added experience 
for that committee's responsibilities. Yeah, Andrew, I think what you said is truly important. And I think a lot of companies tend to fall down a little bit on that. They may have a a well-thought-out succession plan for the C-suite, but they're not thinking necessarily about those emergency situations that may require an immediate interim CEO or CFO or some other individual in that management team. So I think that's really important what you said. And since you brought up the board, I think that's a, a nice segue into your thoughts about what's happening on the on the board succession front and particularly sure. donning your hat as an activist investor. Exactly. So board composition and what I even evaluate as an activist, because of what am I doing? I'm targeting um, potential uh, legacy board members for replacement, especially in the era of UPC, where now the weakest links, the we- the weakest animals in the herd are going to get picked off, basically. So board composition should be built for purpose, just as the C-suite as a whole should be built for purpose. That means regular and continuing board focus and consensus on company goals, same thing you did before, regular and continuing board focus and consensus on the needed skills, this time, what are the needed skills within the boardroom, and having a pipeline or depth of talented candidates. The same three tenets that I referred to before, board should consider directors with multiple skills and experiences so that there's a modicum of overlap already existing in the boardroom. Additionally, expanding the board to accommodate new board members, even before the departure of the retiring directors, can more efficiently provide transfer of institutional knowledge and hopefully avoid reinventing the wheel, which I see happen so often. Additionally, probably more so than in the C-suite, where market forces tend to create turnover. Make it clear to all board members from day one that their position is not a lifetime appointment and is subject to renewal decisions regularly. Build in process and policy ensuring a need for board refreshment. Now, this could be in the form of term or age limits. However, my preference is somewhat unique and is less bright line and provides the board somewhat a cost-benefit flexibility of maintaining certain board members, perhaps beyond a certain number of terms or a certain age limit. And this kind of segues off of the European model. Irrespective of the various listing exchanges race to the bottom with their liberal definitions of independence, which is determinative of service on so many important board committees. Let lengthy director tenure be an additional bright line trigger on the loss of independence classification. This way, other board members who would have to personally step up their board service on key committees, if they didn't bring on a replacement director, must really value that long-tenured director to keep he or she in the boardroom after they've lost their independence classification. And this can be a policy and a process the board adopts. Doesn't have to be you know, mandated by the, the listing exchanges. But I, I think the listing exchanges doing that would, would obviously promulgate this improvement in board succession planning and board refreshment um, across uh, uh, across uh, multiple companies, but it's I think a very good practice and one I recommend to my 
portfolio companies when I get an opportunity to to provide that kind of input. Now, I, pre- I appreciate those comments, and I, I think all too often, you know, folks want to kind of fall back on these bright line tests with is it age, is it you know tenure, is it how many how many you know, boards are you sitting on from a perspective of overboarding or underboarding without looking at the bigger picture on in terms of what does that service require? Not all board, board service is, you know, cut from the same cloth. There's some significant changes and, and opportunities and hardships within company dynamics and, and other transactional aspects that require more time and effort. Some require less. So I think it, it needs to be a very thoughtful approach and a process unique to each board. But I but I take your point and I and I, I liken it to some of the questions around the length of time someone serves on a board, how comfortable or how close has that person got yes. with the management team to be truly objective? Right. right? I think long tenured directors lose social independence. Yeah. And that social independence test has actually been applied by courts in some instances to blow up the the determination that a special committee, for example, is independent. And whether it's the business judgment rule or an enhanced scrutiny test that would be applied um, in a particular conflict of interest uh, decision makings and 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 um, special committee um, uh, transaction judgments, where you know the lawsuits can be quite hefty in size, the risk is huge, and when you go from um, a reasonable business judgment test to an enhanced scrutiny type of uh, test, it's a shifting of the burden of proof, and so it's a big deal. Right, I agree, hundred percent. So I guess with that baseline, Andrew, let's let's tap into your expertise on serving companies both as an activist and as an advisor. So first, I guess, why might an activist become involved in succession and how can companies be best prepared for those activist conversations? Sure. Um, first, I can only opine for myself and my more than three decades of being an active and engaged investor. I, you know, I, I can't opine for some others who call themselves activists that might have much more of a short-term focus. I mean, I'm a long-term investor, unlike what many entrenched managements and boards often allege using a false defensive narrative. Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction, to be fair. Yeah. My view is governance. G is the key. Mm -hmm. I'm wanting and expecting a properly functioning board to exercise the basic tenets of succession planning I just articulated earlier. This is both for the board as well as the C-suite. And determining when a company becomes stagnant or worse, when a company is deteriorating, it's not rocket science. A well-composed and functioning board with a good succession process should recognize this, and perhaps even before the market valuation that attracts me to an activist target uh, uh, reflects um, these issues. And so a well-composed and functioning board with a good succession process should recognize this and take actions. So I'm expecting timely and sufficient changes to address visible problems such as, um, what are these visible problems? A lower return on assets, 
and or a lower return on equity or costs that are out of whack with industry comps. I mean, frankly, if operating metrics like these are in line or even above comp, you should know even then a company's valuation multiples could be far lower than comps. And in that instance, a board still needs to address management's inability to articulate or communicate its investment story to obtain a comparable valuation. That is a sign of dysfunction in a board that is or isn't doing its job that I will go after. A company is best served to have the pieces ensuring a good succession plan are in place and that the plan is effective by making needed changes or being able to articulate why the plan is yet to be implemented. So it's, in a sense, I'm, you know, I'm given a roadmap, frankly, of, of how to have an, uh, an effective activist defense. So I guess the next question then becomes, how is your role as an advisor help companies strengthen their succession planning process? So maybe the from the other side of the coin. Sure. So oftentimes when I've been put into a public board, I, although that's changing, um, uh, as my fund is approaching its maturity and um, uh, my ongoing projects, activist projects that I'm I'm active on, uh, narrow, I'm, I'm becoming available for board servicing companies outside my portfolio. But to, up to this point, when I've been serving on boards, they've been bo- boards of companies in my portfolio, uh, they're usually accompanied by a change in the C-suite, whether it occurred before my invitation and my ascension into the boardroom or it occurs as a result of my you know, going into the boardroom and getting the board to focus on those tenants, where the board then c- comes to that conclusion that there needs to be a, a change in the C-suite uh, one, one, one place um, or another. I usually have not been going on boards where I'm part of a majority slate. I've been going on boards where I've been part of a short slate. Um, and so I've still had to persuade legacy directors of the needed changes if the changes didn't occur concurrent with um, my my particular um, uh, campaign. Um, so now segueing off into the nonprofit and in the private startup world, it's a little bit it's a little bit different. With respect to my chairman president role, my former uh, chairman and president role at the Mill Valley Library Foundation Board. I set succession planning as one of our top four or five strategic board goals during my tenure. And this is because nonprofits can experience quite a bit of churn amongst its board members, whether planned churn or via term limits, um, or it could be unplanned with individuals moving out of the area. You know, the Mill Valley Library Foundation uh, nonprofit is obviously focused on uh, the Mill Valley Library, and you know, if you move out of state, you're not going to really—they're not going to be staying on our board. So we created our first skills matrix by incorporating how our foundation's business model and committees served our mission, and then we focused our board member recruitment on individuals with diverse backgrounds who had at least two, and preferably three, of the key skills and functions we needed in our board members. And this helped us build depth and redundancy. Now, in my board work with private startups, that's a different animal as as well. There's little depth and a whole lot of dependence on the founder visionaries. 
So the focus here is in trying to build a board or an advisor core of individuals that will help round out the skill sets and gaps that the particular startup's business model requires at the given moment. And we all know that 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 evolves quite a bit as a company and its product or services mature, and so does the board and its composition need to do so as well. I mean, one one benefit is, is as a company, a startup matures, it generally grows bigger in valuation and it gains capital and it that capital enables you to start hiring and expanding depth internally in the management team but uh you know early on it's more of a hands-on board ship that has to um you know occur and so uh you think of it as what kind of skills do we need in in management those are the skills you're going to frankly need in in a startup board no, and I appreciate that. And I, I think a, in a similar vein, when you think about companies that are going through transition plans, and I'll just use the the IPO or the SPAC, DSPAC relationships, where you oftentimes have a board that was fit for purpose perhaps before the transaction right. was contemplated. And then as you move forward into the transaction, and I think that specifically the DSPAC transaction, because you don't ultimately know what the target company might end up with and you what you get, you may have a totally different need for skills in both management and the leadership team and the board. So right. in those situations, I think it becomes really important for boards to take a very quick understanding of what it what it means to be a board director and what this individual company's oh, sure, point sure. at the time. So yeah. I, I think and that's that, another area that needs a lot of advisory work, if you will. And not to tout my own horn, but I mean, you think about a DSPAC and all the DSPACs now, I mean, 90% of all the DSPACs in the last year are trading well below their um, $10 initial pricing. Uh, and many of them are approaching bankruptcy. And and part of it is is that they did not they did not staff their board they did not staff their board with individuals that are accustomed to or attuned or experienced in the whole public company it's it's, it's a completely different animal and the DSPAC was an easy process to go public. And they didn't have necessarily bankers that forced them or, or venture capitalists or private equity sponsors that forced them to change their board around to be a board fit for purpose of being a public company with all its regulatory and other compliance burdens. And uh, uh, so similarly, I mean, someone like myself, I'm probably in many ways better off being on boards of more mature private companies that are going to go public, given the fact that I have all this extensive public company board expertise that doesn't add much value to um, you know early stage startup boards uh, as much. But for a private equity or a venture board where they're positioning a company to go public, you know, I'm I'm kind of like the type of my background would be kind of the background that someone should be thinking you need to have someone like that in the in the boardroom. You need to have an investor financial markets experienced person in every public company boardroom, if not you know, more than one, frankly, but at least one, because especially in this era of universal proxy card 
um, uh, contests where individual director skills and their purpose within a boardroom is going to become under a, a magnifying glass. To have someone in the boardroom with shareholder engagement skills and and um, uh, investor understanding that is going to help the management team better articulate their story um, is going to be one of the best means of activist defense there could be. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And hopefully for those listening on this podcast that are, you know, still trying to figure out what what is the type of board I should be serving and I'm best suited to serve. I think the advice Andrew just gave was was really spot on. So so let's switch gears a little bit. We've talked about can, candidate selection um, and succession is one thing, but how do you make the succession process truly successful? So companies need to be thoughtful and proactive in their onboarding activities. And we, I talk a lot about this with, with boards that, I, that I'm that i engaging with. So maybe you could share your thoughts on, on the whole onboarding process. Sure. I have about maybe five kind of facets uh, on this. So first off, a lot of this can take place and should take place in the board recruitment process alone. I mean, you you really would like to pick some candidates who you know the candidates are asking the right questions or asking questions, but uh, when your board members are interviewing, it's not just one person. It's sure sure the hell shouldn't be the CEO. Um, uh, but as the the Gov Non Committee um, members are are interviewing uh, this person, uh, it's you know it's a partially a recruitment you know a process, and you're educating them about you know, the various aspects of the onboarding, but okay. So now that now they come on what we did, of course, this is in our nonprofit. I don't know if you do this in a public company per se, but you, you probably could Cor- a corporate secretary could certainly put something together. We had a new ba- board member orientation handbook. So we had a handbook that talked about all the history, the way, the, the way things function. Of course, there's a section that has the bylaws, the articles, um, a, a sample board book that is distributed. You know, uh, 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 these would be all the the kind of things so that you're not reinventing the wheel. If if in the public company a board which should evolve to all have board books that are distributed to board members well in advance of the meeting, not the night before. Um, uh, that a sample of that in the hands of a new board member already gets them accustomed to information that they are going to get and want to continue getting and then work from enhancing things from that. So you're basically from that point, instead of in reinventing the wheel, you're all learning how to polish and make the wheel you know, smoother, right? Um, assigning a board mentor or a board buddy to all all new uh, board members, uh, potentially having a process of of committee rotation or informal committee attendance, meaning your new board members uh, uh, comes onto the board and they have the skills for which you're going to put them on the audit committee and the comp committee. Well, in their first year, perhaps they should. <coughs> be invited to or uh, encouraged to sit in on a GovNom committee meeting, okay, or a strategic planning committee or risk, you know, risk committee, whatever the different committees might be, have new board members be, you know, ex officio and put in the extra time in that first year 
if you don't have a rotation program itself um, going on. Uh, uh, Boards should have, and then the fifth thing is uh, to have in the budget as part of, you know, quite frankly, it's a recruitment um, uh, uh, carrot, is to have in the budget outside professional development, whether it's uh, NACD uh, credits that you require them to get, uh, private director association, other types of continuing education. I mean, that can be a perk, a recruitment perk, as well as what you're doing is you're um, making that board member more successful and effective in the boardroom. Agreed. And we often get, you know, as as advisors in our own right, we often get requests from our clients on a whole variety of topics. And that could be germane to the audit committee from an accounting and reporting and disclosure aspect, but it could be more broad across the entire board. Like, how, how do you develop a skills matrix in a better fashion. What are we seeing in practice? So, so even just going back to some of the the fundamentals of of board governance and and activities that the board is involved in, sometimes it's good to get a refresher because a lot of folks have been doing this a long time. Um, in other cases, it's where emerging issues are arising or trends that board of directors may not, you know, with all their reading, they may need to hear it a little bit more from the industry steeped professionals because a lot of the board members may be out of out of the industry for quite a period of time. And since their their board duties are somewhat limited to instead of the normal day-to-day that management is ensconced in an industry practice, hearing that from independent third parties outside of the management team is also very helpful to kind of get in independent and uh, verifiable information outside of the management team. Oh, I, most most definitely. I I've been uh, quoted and, and written uh, um, um, on more than uh, a few occasions that um, I believe the duty to be informed, which is not it's uh, a standalone fiduciary duty, is a very very strong leg of the duty of due care, and that duty to be informed. It needs to be taken seriously by board members that they do not solely rely on the input, advice, and uh, information conveyed by internal management. That I I feel as an activist investor that directors have in their duty to be informed have somewhat a duty to have at a minimum a monologue an engagement with outside investors, if not a dialogue. I mean, you can't share material non-public information. But but to have engagement from with outside investors to attend the quarterly earnings calls, to potentially be in the audience at a non-deal roadshow, and here with uh, hear what um, outside investors, prospective and current investors of the company, ask of management and want to know um, is all part of the duty to be informed and the duty of due care uh, and uh, provides great uh, insight to make for a much better and more effective board member. You've given us a lot to think about today, Andrew. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge and your expertise. And uh, hopefully our audience agrees. And I want to thank you for your time and thank our audience for their participation today. 
Great. My pleasure. Thank you, Amy. All right. Well, stay tuned for more episodes of BDO in the Boardroom. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at BDO.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit BDO.com slash BDO Knows Governance.